Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and wisdom of the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my sincerest hope that the reflections that you will hear today on this broadcast will truly touch your heart and in a way show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents here on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me uh, this week to learn the faith together with our good friend, Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Over the last three weeks, we've been talking about the sacraments and, of course, the sacrament of baptism, confirmation, and uh, we've been talking about the Holy Eucharist. And so uh, Archbishop Sheen will continue on this uh, lesson plan with us where he'll unpackage a few more of the mysteries of our faith. And uh, last week he talked about the Holy Eucharist as a sacrament, but this week he wants to talk about the Holy Eucharist as a sacrifice. And so we know our blessed Lord as both priest and victim, uh, that he offered himself up as a victim soul. And so uh, this is the beautiful sacrifice of the Mass. And so uh, Archbishop Sheen will explain that to us later on in the program today. Uh, but we're going to begin, as we always do, with a, a lighter presentation. Uh, Sheen's television show, Life is Worth Living, which was viewed by over 30 million people each week. Uh, of course, his um, just I want to just say his you know his unique way of uh, sharing the gospel message by talking about everyday problems but by the end of the program he's brought you to Christ and so uh, that was his gift that he did week in and week out and so today he's going to talk about human emotions and passions and uh, uh, we all know a passionate person or two uh, and some people that get emotions get the best of them. But uh, he knew that was on their mind, that uh, they wanted to talk about this issue of human emotions and passions. And so he did that in one of his television programs. And so we'll share that with you today. Uh, but before we do that, I want to thank everyone who continues to help us here at Radio Maria. Uh, your generosity is very much appreciated, both your financial gifts and your prayers. So please uh, keep us uh, in your t intentions and uh, you know know that we are like you we're trying to uh, do our best to share the gospel and sometimes that does cost money and uh, the heat and hydro bills keep coming in uh, but we want to keep doing what we're doing so we'd ask for your continued uh, financial support especially uh, but again we will never refuse your prayers <laughs> we always need help and and please pray for me you know I I get behind the microphone and I'm trying my best and uh, but you know like I say I, I just want to make sure I I you know um, have a great uh, charity in what I do and uh, you know it's one of these things where I, I've done this now for over 10 years but 
I've seen just the blessings that happen uh, through this program. You know, my simple pushing the buttons, the the play button, and to let the recordings happen uh, have uh, produced a beautiful fruit over the years. And um, you know, we are now uh, broadcasting all over the world, and so uh, I never thought uh, this would happen. You know, 12 years ago when I began, but uh, to this day, we are heard in the Philippines, Australia, Africa, the United Kingdom, and the United States of America and Canada. So God is good. Well, my dear friends, without further ado, may I present to you Archbishop Sheen's uh, reflection from his Life is Worth Living broadcast titled Human Emotions and Passions. Please enjoy. Friends, I was afraid that you would not believe this if I just told it to you, so may I read you something from a Philadelphia paper. I'm giving it to you verbatim. This appeared in a column. This is an awful blow to us, but a reporter must follow the news no matter how painful. We have been finally forced to admit there's a smart cat. Its name is Mr. Garrity, and he belongs to the Navy Yard's Eleanor Flynn. He's smart in two ways. He hates television except when he hears the televised voice of Bishop Sheen. <laughs> then he drops down from the third floor diggings and sits fascinated in front of the TV. As soon as the bishop is through, he goes back to his diggings. <laughs> I also received a letter from a little girl in the Bronx who told me that a canary never sings except when I am on the air. <laughs> I want you to know that I have the highest rating in television among the cats and dogs and birds. <laughs> You've heard of hep cats, now they're sheen cats. <laughs> I have a suspicion, however, that this cat in Philadelphia spends the rest of his eight lives with Milton Berle. <laughs> and then I received also a letter from uh, Pittsburgh, in which the mother told me that her four-year-old daughter Every night when I, am, when I finish television, she goes up and kisses the screen. So I always get the greeting through an admiral. <laughs> and then uh, there was a, a little girl in Toledo. She was aged four, and she comes in also and sits through the entire telecast. And her mother was amazed and said, why do you sit so still and quiet when you listen to him? She says, just in order to hear him say at the end, God love you. <laughs> and then the little girl said, said, you know, Mommy, as long as we love, we live. But if we don't love, we die. And that's out of the mouths of babes and sucklings come wisdom. And with that as a prelude, what are we talking on tonight? Oh, yes, passion. Human passions and emotions. 
Now, there are uh, two extreme views of passions and emotions. One uh, view was the old Greek view that passions are all wrong. That was the, uh, the philosophy of the Stoics. And then there was the philosophy of the Epicureans who believed that you should always give way to your passions. Now, that has its modern counterpart, or rather both of those systems. And first of all, the view, particularly in the last century, that one should never show any emotion, never any enthusiasm, never manifest a passion, with the possible exception of anger. The result was the 19th century went around like children suppressing a giggle. It is said, I do not know whether it is true or not, that the, uh, the English, in some, to some extent, favored that view. At any rate, I know of an Englishman who attended the World Series last year, at a time when Willie Mays made that famous impossible catch. And 80,000 people stood up and cheer and applauded Willie Mays. This Englishman sat through the whole proceedings and said, uh, Well caught, Gubbins, well caught, Gubbins. <laughs> And then from that extreme, we've gone to the extreme today where it is believed that if a person is psychotic, if he's neurotic, if he's a baseball player and bats below 249, if he plays golf and hits in the 90s, if his business is failing, if his wife doesn't love him, it's because he's not been self-expressive. Then emotions are always, always right. And they always, too, assume that there's only one emotion, generally our age, and that is the the emotion of sex during the 19th century when hardly ever spoke of it. So in the beginning of this century it was said, you know the trouble with the 19th century, and the reason it had so many social problems was because it hushed up the subject of sex. If we would only just bring it out into the open, then we'd have no more social problems. Well, in this century we've given sex the same ventilation that Swiss cheese has, but we've still got our social problems. Incidentally, why is it the only cheese they ventilate is the kind that doesn't need it, namely the Swiss cheese? <laughs> but... Now, as a matter of fact, there's another view which, which denies passions, which enthrones them, and that is the view that passions are a very integral part of man. And to understand that, it must be recalled that man is composed of body and soul. He is composed of matter and spirit, finite in the infinite. Inasmuch as he has a body, he is like animal and has the same emotions. Inasmuch as he has a soul, he has some resemblance to God. Now, the body of man has not one passion. As a matter of fact, we have 11 passions. Basically, 11. Love and hate. Joy and sorrow. Fear and aversion. Yeah, I wonder if I'm going to think of them all. When I get nervous, if I can't, won't that be awful? Won't you get afraid if I can't think of them all? <laughs> Hope and despair. And I have forgotten one. It's all right, I tell you. You looked them up like I did. <laughs> you know where you'll find them? The best treatise that's ever been written on passion. The very best. You can follow modern psychologists as I have. I have. 
which you'll find nothing comparable to them written in one, two, question, 124, and article one and following of the Summa. Almost forgot that reference. Well, there are 11 passions in all. Now, what is interesting about these passions is that they act very differently inside of us than they do inside of an animal. The reason they act differently inside of us is simply because we have a soul. We have a knowledge. Uh, that is why, for example, uh, hydrogen is not the same in water as it is in sulfuric acid. The symbol of one is H2O, the symbol of the other H2SO4. Colors on a palette are not just the same as the, as the colors that are mixed in a painting because they're in a different composite. Sex is not the same in a pig, sex in a man. Hence, uh, an animal can be promiscuous and not have any mental problems. Man is promiscuous, and he has all kinds of mental problems. Never heard of a rooster going to a psychiatrist? <laughs> and one of the reasons that a man has these particular problems is because he has infinite desires for love that cannot be completely satisfied in a body that is finite. Hence the terrific tension. Now, if emotions and passions are different in a man than they are in an animal, it is always because in a human being, a passion is preceded by knowledge, by will, by reason, by some information about an object. An idea is always the conduit of an emotion for man. Now, take, for example, uh, anger. There always has to be an idea that precedes the emotion of anger. I heard, for example, of a suburbanite up in Westchester who, before he was going to work one morning, was asked by his wife, would you please go out, John, into the kitchen and, and give Hilda a good talking to? Well, he said, uh, I thought she was getting along all right. My wife says, she is, but today's the day she beats her carpets and she always does it better when she's mad. <laughs> there had to be some idea preceding the emotion of anger. Now take, for example, hope. A girl has a hope to be married. She has a hope checked. <laughs> she may boast that she's been asked 20 or 30 times to get married. Always by her father and mother. <laughs> She cannot have the emotion of hope uh, without reference to some kind of a man. Incidentally, I have a cousin who proposed to the same girl ten times. He's been turned out so often he looks like a bedspread. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Uh, I know one man who said that uh, uh, his wife was even-tempered. She was always mad. <laughs> but there had to be some idea preceding it. Take, for example, fear. A husband is late coming home from work. And that idea of my husband being late begins to excite all kinds of emotions. Maybe he's, uh, he's run off with another woman. Maybe he fell down a manhole. And finally, she's in a terrific state of excitement. Did you ever notice, incidentally, the different reaction of a man, a husband, and a wife uh, when uh, each is late. If a wife comes home, the husband says, I've been waiting for you, dear. I've been worried. The wife is always flattered. <laughs> if the husband comes home late and the wife has been waiting, say she has, the husband always gets mad. <laughs> Just as soon as she says she's worried, he gets mad. I do not know why there's this different reaction in these two human beings, but it, it happens to be the fact. Take, for example, the emotion of sorrow. Why does one weep? Simply because one has a knowledge of a death, a bereavement, an accident of some kind. It is the idea that produces the tears. So it is very important, therefore, to realize that in there is always a knowledge that precedes and emotion. Now let us go on from there to the relationship between character and emotion. First of all, we can develop character or we can destroy it. One may be a normal character or one may be abnormal. What is a normal being? A normal human being is one whose emotions are under the control of reason and will, the moral law. Therefore, this is the relationship. His emotions, his passions, are all subject to right reason, to a standard, to a moral law. I heard once of a, of a radio station in the Middle West that got a, a letter from an old man. He said, would you please, sometime on your program, strike the note A. I have an old fiddle, and it's out of tune, and I get so much enjoyment out of it, I want to have it tuned. He recognized the standard. Once that standard was given, then he was happy. The reason is the standard. Now here, for abnormality, you have it some such relationship as this, in which reason and the noble part of man is subjected to the emotion. In order to understand precisely how this, how this operates, suppose that, that I, uh, I hate to draw, but I guess I better draw. All right. Uh, here is a stair. <laughs> what are you laughing at? You recognize it? 
I'm afraid to go any further. <laughs> that's a door. And there's a man. At the door, top of the door. This is a cellar. And down here are the emotions. Now, just as a man in a house, we use his reason to determine who is going to come up those stairs. So we will use his reason to determine what emotions are going to possess him and to what extent. For example, a man will allow perhaps his dog in the house, but he'll not allow every dog in the neighborhood. A woman will allow her own child in, but not allow every child in the block. And then maybe we may not allow her own child to come in if the child's feet are dirty. There's always some reason, some determination, some standard used. Now, it's exactly the same with the way reason works, for example, in regards to light. You don't mind looking at, a, at an electric lamp as you read. You're looking at light now as you look at your television screen. But you would not look at an ultraviolet light because that's too strong. You would be very willing uh, to listen to a sound as you're listening to the sound of my voice now. But you would not use your ears to listen to an explosion. You would say, no, that is not reasonable. I will not use my ears that particular way. You would use fire, warm your hands, but you'd not put your hands into the fire. Use water to wash your hands, but you would not use water to drown yourself. Exactly the same principle is to be used in relationship to emotions and to passion. Reason will determine their use. Reason and will, and will has control over them and can do whatever it pleases with them. For example, there are those in our contemporary world, for example, who say, speaking of the emotion of love in the form of sex, there's nothing wrong with sex. Nothing to be ashamed of it. Certainly not. If you mean it as a gift of God for the propagation of the human species, In that sense, we would say, nothing wrong with eating. Or I'd be ashamed of that. Is there something wrong at slobbering a table? So we have the instinct to eat. Is there something wrong even about eating your soup with a loud noise? I knew an Englishman who dropped all his H's when he drank al alphabet soup. <laughs> So every single passion, therefore, is to be brought under the control of right reason. Now suppose we come to the abnormal character. In the abnormal character, we have, again, our stairs. You know, my angel forgot to erase the last time. He had his eraser caught under his left wing. <laughs> and suppose you shot reason. You did not believe in reason. And here's poor Reason out here, all dead. 
And so the emotions now are allowed to come up, to assert themselves, to give way to every single one, never control them. With what result? But with the result that one becomes nothing but a, a center of conflicting forces, very much like, for example, uh, the demon, the young man out of whom our blessed Lord cast the devil. And our Lord said to the, said to the devil and the young man, what is your name? And the devil said, my name is Legion, for we are many. No unity of personality. I believe that when people give themselves over excessively, now the important word here is excessively, for example, excessively, or almost exclusively, to the reading of romances, to listen to dramas on television, in order that they may have their emotions awakened. These people have their emotions aroused, love and hate and fear and daring and anger and so forth, for a hero, against an injustice. But they're all against mythical characters, and after a while the emotions fall back upon themselves, dead and inert. The result is that their emotional life becomes very much like a screen door in the summertime, Children play with the screen, tug at it, plug, plug, pull at it, and as a result, the screen door will not close eventually. And so emotions become so tattered and so worn that eventually when a real object presents itself to the mind, where there ought to be real love, where there ought to be real hate, where there ought to be anger, where there ought to be a vindication of justice, the emotional life is so tattered and worn and destroyed that we have no crusades and no action. I think that is the reason why there is not much action in political life. Against traitors, for example. Against juvenile delinquents. And against any kind of evil. And hence, for the restoration of peace, it must be recognized that it is possible for every human being to lock out some of these passions and to enthrone reason here, to open the door and to have reason, the moral law, and faith decide what emotion will possess them and to what extent. Mary Magdalene came out of an emotional cellar such as this and became a saint. Peter had weakness, but he became a saint. And so it is possible for anyone who may live down in these cavernous, libidinous depths to arouse his reason, to arouse his faith, to arouse eternity and the moral law. And this is the kind of enthusiasm and faith that the world needs today. As a matter of fact, we do not have enough passion. There once was a passion that began in a day when love went freely to death in order to save the world. It was a passion that swept the world. And it was a passion that was inspired by truth, by right reason, by submission to the will of the Heavenly Father. That is the kind of passion for truth that gives peace and emotional life stability. One step beyond that mediocrity, and we are saved. You are listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, here on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me once again for this opportunity that we have each week to learn our faith together and to be given a word of encouragement or two by the good Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. It is true what he said. Uh, we lack so much passion today. Passion for the faith, passion for what is right and true. And uh, again, Archbishop Sheen is challenging us 
in his reflections for us to have passion to uh, you know to rise up to uh, you know not be so hidden or quiet but to uh, pick up our arms and to truly be that soldier for Christ that soldier that's willing to go into battle battle for the faith battle for the kingdom of God and yes many of us sometimes cower and we'd rather take the safe position or avoid the conflict but yet I think we know what's right and what's true that we need to uh, again uh, sacrifice <laughs> and I you know it's it's a difficult word to sometimes say is sacrifice but we have to make that sacrifice for the faith and uh, speaking of the word sacrifice Archbishop Sheen will give us a catechism lesson today uh, using that word uh, he's going to talk about the Holy Eucharist as a sacrifice and so uh, may I encourage you now just to sit back and relax and to and enjoy this catechism lesson uh, this beautiful series of talks that Archbishop Sheen put together in the mid 60s and are still enjoyed today and so uh, this is the lesson the Holy Eucharist as sacrifice Please enjoy. Peace be to you. The subject of this lesson is the Mass. It is a continuation of the Eucharist in the last lesson. It must be understood at the beginning that the Eucharist may be considered either from the point of view of a sacrament or from the point of view of a sacrifice. In order to understand this distinction, because it is rather a technical one, we go back to the analogy of nature. Every day of your life, you partake of certain food, the products of wheat, vegetables, fish, meat. They all enter into the sustenance of your life. They nourish you, they feed you. But have you ever thought of this other side? Before they can ever nourish you, they must be submitted to some kind of sacrifice. Before they can be the sacrament of your physical life, they must die or be sacrificed. The vegetables must be torn up from the roots submitted to fire, the purification of waters. Animals must be submitted to the knife. Death, in other words, intervenes before you can live. Even nature, therefore, suggests that before you can have a sacrament, you must have a sacrifice. Before you can have communion, you must have the sacrifice or the consecration. Now running through nature too is this other law that we live by what we slay. After all, we slay to some extent the vegetables and certainly the animals. And when we slay them and they submit themselves to our living, they are transformed into our higher life. This law seems to be applied even on Calvary. Is it not true when we look at that cross? 
that we live by what we slay? Who of us can claim innocence of the crucifixion? Which one of us can lay his hand upon the crucifix and say, I am innocent of the blood of this man? Our pride is there in crown of thorns, our avarice in the pinioned hands, our carnality in torn flesh. And yet, though we are responsible for his death through our sins, he gives us his life. We live by what we have slain. We said that our blessed Lord came to this earth in order to redeem us. There's always been an anticipation in history of sacrifice, of this great sacrifice. Man, conscious of his own unworthiness, has taken wheat and grapes and bullocks and doves and sheep, made these things stand for himself. Then he destroyed them in order that there might be some proof before God that he was not worthy to exist in his presence. You see, it was a vicarious sacrifice in the sense that they stood for man. Now, in the Jewish religion, the sacrificial types were ordained by God himself. One of them was the Paschal Lamb. But in all sacrifices, pagan and Jewish, the priest who offered was always distinct from the victim which was offered. If we call the priest the offerer, he is distinct from the fruit or the animal which was the offered. The two are never together. Always distinct. You could point to the priest on one hand, the victim on the other until our Lord appeared. Our blessed Lord was both priest and victim. He differed from every other sacrifice in the world in the sense that he offered himself. He gave his own life. He was the offerer and the offered. He took our place. There was still a vicarious sacrifice. He took our place as if the sins were his own. Now, what is the Mass? It is the commemoration of that death and the application of that sacrifice of the cross to ourselves. Because this is rather a new idea, perhaps, to many, we will have to use an analogy. And the analogy is that of Memorial Day. All peoples have kept a memory of the soldiers who died in battle in order that their memory might evoke piety and love of country. In the United States, we decorate soldiers' graves on Memorial Day, recalling the sacrifice which they made in order that we might live and be preserved in freedom. Now our blessed Lord died as the great captain of our salvation, he did not come to live. He came to die. That was the purpose of his coming. 
to offer himself in our stead to undo, to undo our infinite guilt. His death, in a certain sense, was more important than the 33 years of his physical life because it was his death that purchased our salvation. And the bloody sacrifice on the cross began when he instituted the Last Supper. Notice the words now of our Lord just before he instituted this memorial. He's going to have a memorial, not day, but act. And immediately before he institutes this memorial, Scripture states, Jesus already knew that the time had come for his passage from this world to the Father. He still loved those who were his own, whom he was leaving in this world, and he would give them the uttermost proof of his love. Now he proposes to give that uttermost proof. The Last Supper, which is looking forward to his cross, he is not going to leave the memory of his death to the chance recollection of men, because he knows that men have very short memories. He is going to himself institute the precise memorial. So on this night before he dies, at the Last Supper, he institutes not a memorial day, but a memorial act. Here we must recall the words of our Lord, the Last Supper. Quoting the Gospel of Luke. Then he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Continuing scripture. Then he took a cup and offered thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink all of you of this, for this is my blood of the New Testament, shed for many to the remission of sins. Thus scripture. At that moment, the substance of the bread became the substance of the body of Christ, the substance of the wine became the substance of his blood. Now he says to his church, and I'm quoting scripture, our Lord said, what I have just done, do you in your turn, in commemoration of me, Certainly these words mean that if the apostles were to do what he did, they had to be given the power to do it. 
Now this night of the Last Supper, when our Lord instituted this commemoration of his death, he was looking forward to Calvary on the next day. The cross would not be a distinct sacrifice. It would not be an entirely different oblation, but merely a new presence of the same sacrifice. This Last Supper was the unbloody presentation of his sacrifice, and the next day, would be bloody when our blessed Lord went to the cross. What we have to emphasize here is our Lord said, do this, repeat it, prolong it, extend it through space and time that all may share in my sacrifice. When we do this, we have the Mass. Here we invoke another analogy, and all analogies are incomplete. But here we use the analogy of a drama. Suppose that some great playwright wrote a magnificent drama, the greatest one that was ever composed, It might conceivably have been the story of how a whole community of people who are suffering from leprosy were cured of that disease, how they were restored to peace and unity among themselves, and how they all began to live in charity. Suppose, furthermore, that this drama was so well written and presented and acted that it would be a shame if only the people of one city and in one theater and at one moment of time saw it. What a tragedy, we would say, that a drama which did so much for the hearts of men should have no other recall, no other memory than what, say, four dramatic critics wrote about it, telling about the characters quoting a line here and there. Do you think our Lord went through this tragedy of Calvary only once and intended to leave no other memory than what four writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, might say about it? Of course not. Just as theater producers would organize road companies of that great drama, so our blessed Lord organized road companies, as it were. The great tragedian Christ offered his life for the sins of the world in accordance with the script that had been written by his heavenly Father. And immediately afterwards, in accordance with his instructions, the tragedy of Calvary is repeated throughout the world thanks to the road companies, as it were, which are playing to packed houses every day, even to this very hour. This representation, this reenactment of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross applied to our day and to our lives is the Mass. In the Mass, the mystical body of Christ, actually united to Christ its head, offers through him and with him the sacrifice of Calvary. 
As our blessed Lord in the Last Supper looked forward to the cross, so in the Mass we look back to the cross in the Last Supper. Which brings up two questions. How does the sacrifice of the cross differ from the sacrifice of the Mass? And are the sacrifice of the cross and the sacrifice of the Mass the same? Let us take similarities, then differences. First, what are the similarities between the cross and the Mass? This is the basic similarity. There is the same priest in both, Christ, and the same victim in both, Christ. Both on the cross and in the Mass, our Lord is both the offerer and the offered. That is why Scripture says, Quote, we can claim a great high priest, one who has passed right up through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us come boldly then before the throne of grace to meet with mercy and win that grace which will help us in our needs. Note the continuing exercise of his priesthood. In the Mass, he offers to his Father his sacrifice. He is pleading as high priest on our behalf. Now here's an image that cannot be pressed too closely, but imagine our blessed Lord in heaven in his glory, holding out his scars, saying to his heavenly Father, See what I suffered for men. As the epistle to the Hebrews said, if the sacrifices of the Old Testament gave outward purification, shall not the blood of Christ who offered himself through the Holy Spirit Purify our consciences to serve the living God. Our Lord is the priest and the victim. Between our sins and his glory, he interposes his eternal sacrifice. Will you ask, what is the role of the priest, the earthly priest? And he stands at the altar. But when I, for example, offer the Holy Mass, I am merely the instrument of Christ. He offers the Mass. He's the offering. I am not an instrument like a pencil, but an animated instrument. Every priest is the sacramental image of Christ, in whose person and in who, with whose power he utters the words of consecration. We cannot repeat it too often. Christ is the priest, Christ is the victim. Now, when we are ordained, we receive a power to act by the power of Christ and in his name. We lend our Lord our tongue. We give him the use of our hands. But the sacrifice is his. He is the priest, he is the victim. What now are the differences? Among others, we will mention two. The sacrifice of the cross was a very bloody sacrifice, and the sacrifice of the Mass is unbloody. That is to say, on Calvary, those who stood near it saw red rivers of redemption flow from hands and feet inside. But in the Mass, there is no physical crucifixion. The crucifixion is symbolically 
represent it under the species of bread and wine. A second difference, and this is very important. On the cross, our Lord was alone. In the Mass, the mystical body is with him. On the cross, our Lord was alone. He redeemed us all. By that sacrificial act, he put, as it were, a great deposit in a bank for the spiritually poor of the world. It will only be through the coming of the Spirit that we will be able to draw on that deposit. And when the Holy Spirit came and the Church began to offer the Mass, then our Lord is not alone. We are with him. He, the head, makes use of his body. The mystical body is united with Christ, the head, the offerer. The mystical body is united with Christ, the head, as the offered. That is why when we offer the Mass, the prayers are in the plural. For example, we thy servants, Lord, and with us all thy holy people, offer to thy sovereign majesty this sacrifice. In the Mass, our Lord is no longer the sole priest, no longer the sole victim. First of all, he has associated with him us earthly priests who are the instruments of his power, but he also has victims associated with him too, namely the sacrifices and the battles against the old Adam and the crucifixion of our lusts and concupiscences, in fact, all of the trials of the mystical body of Christ. Mass, then, is not a souvenir. When you assist at Mass, it is not just the same as going, for example, to Calvary and chipping away a rock and saying, this is a souvenir of the place where our Lord died. No, the Mass is a vision. It is an action. In time and in eternity. In time because we see it. We see it taking place before our eyes on the altar. It is also in eternity as regards the value of redemption. All of the merits of our Lord's death, resurrection, ascension, glorification, are applied to us. We unite ourselves with that great eternal act of love. The Mass, then, is not a distinct sacrifice from the cross. If when the Blessed Mother and St. John and Mary Magdalene, if when they were at the foot of the cross, they had closed their eyes and merely consecrated on the tremendous mystery of love being enacted before their eyes, they would have been assisting at the Mass. 
And if we at the Mass close our eyes and concentrate on that mystery, we would equivalently be with Mary and Magdalene and John at the foot of the cross. The Mass is not a new sacrifice. It is the representation in space and in time of redemption. Why should we be penalized by the eternal because of the accident of time? Are there not women today who want to be Veronica's and to offer veils to the suffering Christ? Are there not men like Simon who want to help him carry the cross? And do we not want to take our own sufferings to have them united with him in order that they might be considered part of our expiation for sins. It is said that today that science might someday be able to go back and pick up all of the sounds that were ever spoken and ever uttered and ever made in the universe because they exist someplace in space. That means that we might recover the voice of Alexander and Gregory and Demosthenes and even the voice of Christ. But what is that compared to going back and finding and repeating the very sacrifice of the cross, of taking the cross of Calvary, transplanting it into New York, to London, Tokyo, and Berlin, and applying the benefits of redemption to our souls now? What a mystery of love. This is the Mass. God love you. are listening to Bishop Sheen Presents here on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me today to uh, learn our faith together. Uh, Archbishop Sheen was talking about the Mass, and of course, uh, that book that he wrote in 1936 titled Calvary in the Mass can be enjoyed uh, today, um, I know that we republished it at uh, Bishop Sheen Today Publishing, and so you can pick up a copy. Uh, but you'll also find the book Calvary and the Mass in a beautiful book called Lord Teach Us to Pray. And it's a book uh, distributed by Sophia Institute Press. And I've been mentioning over the last few weeks the Book of Sacraments uh, that uh, they actually published. It's a beautiful collection of Sheen's writing on the sacraments and marriage, but they also produced a book on Sheen's writings on prayer. And so the book Lord Teach Us to Pray has uh, the Holy Hour prayer book. It also has uh, the Calvary and the Mass and uh, a number of other meditations on the Our Father and various prayers. And so I may invite you to visit the website Sophia Institute Press. Uh, they can be found sophiainstitute.com on the web. And uh, there is a great selection of Archbishop Sheen's writings, along with many other great authors. And they're offering us a 25% discount when we use the promo code SHEEN25 when we check out. So, again, SHEEN25 at uh, sophiainstitute.com. Also, these books are available on Amazon and wherever fine books are sold, but uh, we can never have enough uh, quality books in our lives, especially the ones penned by Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. May I invite you to uh, drop me a line on my website at uh, bishopsheentoday.com. 
Uh, of course, I've tried to find every video that I could on Archbishop Sheen and posted it to the website. Uh, audio recordings are on file. And there's a number of free downloadable books and pamphlets too. So uh, visit the website again, bishopsheentoday.com. My dear friends, I pray that you will have a blessed week. And until the next time that we meet, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you.